I was at McDonald's the other day, and I noticed that on these little like table things, they, they now say welcome home uh, at McDonald's. Which, uh, so I hope you feel as welcome here, at least as you do when you go into McDonald's. Uh, this feels like, I don't know what it says about us as a culture that we have like welcome home at McDonald's, but um, I hope you feel welcome here. Dan, thanks for, uh, for welcoming us. And uh, I want to begin our time, I'm going to read the scripture for us in a moment. Uh, but I want to begin our time by asking God to uh, help us in understanding his word. Um, we know that uh, God's word uh, is living, it's active, but we also need his spirit to make it alive in our lives. And so I want to ask for that right now, and then we'll, uh, then we'll dive in together. Father in heaven, thank you that you uh, have spoken to us, that you've taken the initiative and come to us, that we can know you only because you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that as we look at uh, this portion of Scripture this morning that you have for us, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, make it living, active, alive in our lives. Um, That the places where we're tempted to sort of elude that truth, that you would cause us to to step into the light. Do that for me. Do that for each one of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have seen or read The Hunger Games or the Divergent uh, series? A number of you, right? They're great. We've seen, seen all the films, really enjoy those. Or The Walking Dead, Mad Max. As a culture, I mean, at this, at this period of time, we have sort of a fascination with dystopian futures. What would happen in the world if, uh, if there was a, a zombie apocalypse or if a totalitarian power took over uh, the entire world? And, and what would a resistance in that way look like? And while those books are certainly in films are popular and they're not, uh, it doesn't seem like they're, they're going anywhere, they're certainly not new. Um, in fact, uh, there was two books, I think in many ways, that sort of pioneered that genre in the, in the last century. Um, and two prime examples are uh, 1984 by Orwell and Brave New World by Huxley. And those were both written in the 1930s and 40s, both about um, dystopic futures Uh, But cultural critic Neil Postman points out that actually the stories couldn't be more different. In 1984, the infamous Big Brother is always watching and controlling people through fear. In Brave New World, it's just as a bleak of a story, but instead of people being manipulated by fear, uh, they end up being ruled by their loves. And listen to how Postman frames the two stories in the foreword to his landmark book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He makes some really interesting observations. He says, contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. And he concludes this way, In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. I don't know which one of you think, uh, which one of those features is more likely to be true, and hopefully 
neither. And yet I feel a lot of resonance with that last statement, that, that what we love may ruin us. See, if you live for pleasure, it will eventually kill you. If it's food you love or alcohol or money or success or relationships or career, if you place your hope in those things, they will eventually ruin you. You see, that, that our loves left uncontrolled, untethered, disordered, just might end up being the thing that ruins us. And, and not in some sort of end-of-the-world dystopic future, but like right here, right now in our lives. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said something very similar. He said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go. Whatever you love, there goes your will, your desires, your imagination, your attention. That thing ends up being your master. See, we are ruled by what we love. We're ruled by what we love. The, the question isn't whether or not we're going to be ruled. The question is, what master are we going to serve? And we're continuing in a series on the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Matthew is giving us this picture through, through Jesus' teaching of what the truly good life is. Who's the truly good person? This life that Jesus is inviting to us to as his people. And this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. So I encourage you to pull it up on your phone. If you just Google Matthew 6, um, you'll, it'll pop right up. Uh, or grab one of the Pew Bibles and you can turn to page 811, uh, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read that for us in a little bit. And Jesus reminds us that where we're at in this uh, sermon series, um, we're focusing on the heart. Jesus specifically in the Sermon on the Mount spends a lot of time focusing on the heart. And we've seen just how keeping the rules on the outside isn't enough, right? So if you, if you just sort of go through life and you never murder anyone, that's great. But Jesus says if you have a heart full of anger, you're just as bad off as if you had murdered someone. And then last week we spent time thinking about how Jesus shows us even our good deeds, even the stuff we're doing right, are so often distorted because we do them for the wrong reasons or for the wrong audience to gain the approval and the affirmation of other people rather than an audience of one. We end up being about us and the glory we receive rather than about God and his glory. And this morning, we're keeping the focus on our hearts, but specifically now, where our hearts focused, how are our loves being ordered? And this morning... You may have noticed, too, on the title slide that we talk about it being a better master part one. And that's because next week we're going to continue in the same theme. These two messages are tied really closely together. You see, when our hearts grow distorted, particularly about money and stuff, we can go in one of two directions. We will be ruled by what we love, and we'll either become a slave to what we think that money can give us. That's this week. Or we become a slave to worry and anxiety, and that's what we're going to look at next week. So I'm going to read our passage here, and as I do, listen for the options before us. Jesus points out a better treasure, a better lens, and a better master. A better treasure, a better lens, a better master. So this is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see, Jesus says, what we love will rule us. So what will you love? The first of the three metaphors that Jesus uses in this passage um, is the metaphor of treasuring or, or treasure. And I don't know about you, the first thing when I hear the word treasure pops into my mind, I think of sort of a, a pirate uh, burying treasure on some Caribbean island in a big chest. Uh, and that's, that's not wrong. Jesus is talking about material things, stuff, gold, money, clothes, possessions. And his point is that your treasure, the things you are most concerned with, the things that are most valuable to you, those are the things that will end up controlling you. So choose a better treasure, And Jesus centers around in this passage one of the biggest idols for us as people. And this is true whether or not you're a Christian. We all know the kind of slavery that money can create. And Jesus says that life in the kingdom that he's bringing, the life that he is inviting us to, is marked by a different kind of treasuring. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in, and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is encouraging treasuring, but a different sort of treasuring, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, stop treasuring earthly things. <laughs> and the way that he even constructs that sentence in the original language makes it clear that he's not just saying, I know a lot of you aren't doing this, but it's a temptation, don't start. He's assuming we're all doing this and telling us to stop. Jesus is assuming we're storing up treasures for ourselves on earth. We need to stop doing that. He's assuming this is what we're doing. And again, now don't misunderstand, understand, don't misunderstand me, or more importantly, don't misunderstand Jesus here. That's the, the real and significant thing uh, about this. But stuff is good. Okay, Jesus made the whole world, everything in it, lots of stuff. He loves matter. Stuff is a good thing. He's the giver, the giver of every good gift. He's the creator. And the Bible has a lot to say about saving, about wise planning and preparation. So, so don't go out after this uh, sermon and stop contributing to your retirement account. It's not what this is about. You see, earthly treasures are treasures. Jesus doesn't deny that. He calls them treasures. Jesus' point is they just can't be ultimate treasures. Stuff is good, just can't be ultimate. If we make earthly earthly treasure our ultimate treasure, then we will overwork, we'll oversave, we'll overspend. Everything else will be out of alignment. Um, As one person put it, we... We'll end up buying things we don't really want to impress people we don't really like with money we don't really have. 
And Christian financial expert Larry Burkett said it, said it this way, the, the only difference between saving and hoarding is attitude. The only difference between saving and hoarding is attitude. It always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? This is Jesus' point. Now, some of you may be thinking this morning, Bill, I'm actually, this is a great Sunday for me. I don't have any money. Uh, so I can kind of check out during this one. This is not a problem for me. Um, but even if you feel like you have nothing, man, money and treasure, it can still control us, right? I mean, and, and in fact, those of you here in the room who feel like maybe you have the least because you have a ton of debt and just know how much of a slave master money can be. So whether you're rich or poor, whether your net wealth is positive or negative this morning, we are all a mess when it comes to how we relate to money and treasure. Just think about this. I mean, you look around, wherever you drive in Kansas City, and they're, and they're building more of them, there's these big storage units, right? I mean, there's a number of them right down Warnell here. Everywhere you go, there's these big storage units where you can rent a place to store your stuff. And we live in the biggest houses that have ever existed in the world. And yet we have to rent out storage containers because we can't fit all the stuff in our house. And this is one of the reasons that the, the life-changing magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo is a bestseller. I mean, she gives you permission just to get rid of stuff that you don't want, that you don't need, that is keeping you enslaved. As I read through this book, she talks about how her average client that she works with ends up throwing away 30 or 40 trash bags, like big 50-gallon trash bags worth of stuff from their house. And here's where Jesus almost kind of, you can almost imagine just kind of laughing in this moment. Because, yeah, he's making a spiritual argument, but he's also making a logical argument that when we worship money and, and all the things we think money we can give, it, he says, but look, it's just all going to go to moth and rust and it can get stolen. Like this isn't, forget the spiritual dimension. This doesn't even make, make sense logically. This isn't just bad for us spiritually. It's just foolish. And we put our, our hope in technology, but then it's, it's out of debt. I mean, they probably came out with a new uh, Apple Watch while we were here this morning, right? I mean, um, clothes are great, but fashions change, right? Houses, something's always breaking. Cars you're driving every mile makes them a little less valuable than they were the mile before. You have toys, kids, you, you outgrow them. Savings, we all know acutely. You have 2008 happen, and all of a sudden those requirement accounts aren't worth as much. I mean, at least when Jesus is talking, he says, store up earthly treasures that moth and rust can eat. I mean, he's talking about physical commodities, gold, clothing. I mean, most of our wealth is numbers on a computer somewhere, right? Talk about fleeting. So according to Jesus, treasuring money isn't, isn't just wrong. It, it's just, it's dumb. It just doesn't make any sense. So here's the first step this morning. Make an inventory of your treasure. Make an inventory of your treasure. Not a list of your possessions, but an ordering of your loves. What do you treasure? What do you treasure most? How are your loves, your affections, how are they ordered? You can tell a lot about a person by looking at their budget. Now, a lot of us in this room, maybe you don't have a budget. Uh, for a long time, Rachel and I used to have what we called an after-action report. It was just like, this is what we spent this month. It wasn't really a plan. Uh, it was just sort of like, here's, here's, here's what happened. 
Um, that's not really a budget, okay? Uh, it's good to start keeping track of where the money's going. Um, but a budget's a plan. Make a budget. And then what does it tell you about how you're spending? If you need help with that, sign up for an FPU class. Get on the same page about that. Rachel and I are actually taking a Financial Peace University class right now. And it's been really helpful for us as a couple to kind of get on the same page with how we're thinking about our budgeting and money and priorities. So look at your budget. Also think about um, questions that can kind of help you get at what you treasure. What do you spend your time daydreaming about? If you have a, a, a quiet moment, where does your mind wander? Um, what do you find yourself browsing Amazon for? This is one that always is convicting to me. What am I, what's on my Amazon wish list? What am I constantly researching? Um, what are the things that you're willing to go into debt to get? Because you, you have to have them before you can save up. What are the things that it's hardest to say no to? And maybe you're thinking, okay, Bill, this is good. And I, I mean, I like buying stuff. Everybody likes buying stuff. I don't think this is really a problem for me. And maybe I challenge you with this, then, then stop. Try to stop buying stuff that you don't need. Maybe this is what you do during the kind of this 40 days during Lent. I mean, you already got a five-day head start. But maybe you say, for these time until Easter, I'm just going to try to buy necessities. Could you actually do that? Giving up chocolate or Facebook sounds a lot easier, doesn't it? Or maybe go through your house and get rid of all that stuff that you just don't use, you don't want, you don't need, that you've moved from your dorm room to your apartment to your house to your next house, and you don't ever use it. Because maybe this land isn't just about giving something up, it's maybe about giving something away. We're ruled by what we love. So get rid of the stuff that you don't want to be in charge of you anymore. Next, Jesus picks up on this metaphor of an eye or a better lens. And he says, we need a better lens with which to view these possessions, these resources, these treasures. Look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, so what in the world does that mean? Um, there's a lot going on in this, this kind of odd saying that Jesus has here. But essentially what Jesus is saying is that your eyes guide you. That where your eyes go, the rest of you go. Have you ever taken skiing lessons or driving lessons? Right, And they always tell you, wherever you're looking, that's where you're going to go. The car, your skis, um, your ice skates. Where your eyes are pointed, that's where you're going to go. If your eyes are focused in a good direction, focused rightly, then they'll take you in the right direction. But if your eyes are bad, if the lens through which you process the world is only focused on earthly things, only focused on earthly treasures as ultimate, then your eyes are going to lead you into more darkness. And this is what Jesus is getting at. When it comes to money, stuff, earthly treasure, most of us have a lens as that are far more distorted than we realize. Because think about it. A lot of sins are really obvious. Like, we, we're not wondering when we've committed them. So if you've committed a murder, it's like you kind of know you've done that. It's like, not like, where, where did this body come from? Or, or adultery is the same way, right? You don't wake up to someone you're not married to and be like, wait a second, you're not my spouse, what happened? 
We know when we're committing murder, adultery. There's, it's not, there's not a lot of ambiguity there. But what about greed? How do you know when you're being greedy? Usually the test for me is it's like, well, the greedy people are the people who have this a little bit bigger house and nicer car than I do. Right? Until I get a raise and then I'm driving the nicer car and have a little bit bigger house and it's just the people who have the little bit bigger house and a little bit nicer car. It's not, a, it's not a good measure. How do you know? Well, let me see if I can shed a little bit of light to help us just put this in perspective. Not, not to make us feel guilty, truly. And, and that's not the goal at all. Because again, wealth, money, stuff are good things. I can't say that enough. God created those things and they're good we just forget how much of them we actually have. Okay, so for starters, we live in the U.S., which by all measures is you know, one of the wealthiest hist- countries in the history of the world. So there's that just as a base level of just where we're at in the planet and in history. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, many of us, certainly not all of us, many of us live in some of the most desirable neighbors in all, neighborhoods in all of Kansas City. And if you just sort of take, you know, the zip codes that are, you know, a mile, mile and a half in any direction from the church, and you just take the median income of what those of us make in, in those zip codes, by that measure, we're in the top 0.11% of income in the world. I, so there's 7.3 billion people in the world, and most of us here are richer than about 7.2 billion of them. How many of us wish we had just a little bit more? I mean, I know I do. We just worked on the budget last night. I wish we had a little bit more. I'm just so grateful we're not slaves to money. We need a better lens. So we have to inventory our treasures, and next we have to discern what are we looking for those things to give us because money is just money. But what is it promising you? What, is, what do you look to money to provide you? And for some of us, it's status, sort of how important we look. The, so the stuff that we buy is about looking a certain way. The clothes we wear, the car, the house, that, that we've arrived, that you want the world to know that you've reached a certain status, Right? For others, it's about power or control or safety. It's a, it's a lot easier to trust money to fix your problems than to trust God. This is probably the place where my lens is most distorted. I want to have the big cushion so that if I got sick and lost, or lost my job or something blows up in the house, that I have the money just to write a check and cover it. I don't want to have to trust God. Other, it's about uh, pleasure or comfort that, that we can sort of buy happiness that money will make us happy. You see, ultimately, though, Jesus offers us every one of those things, security and power and comfort and provision. We just don't really believe he can follow through. Do we really believe that he hears and answers our prayers when we say, would you give us our daily bread? We end up settling for money instead. And this is where community comes in. Because some of us need to have a really hard conversation with a friend, the spouse, with a financial planner, and, and ask them to honestly tell you if you're off in the way that you relate to money and stuff. 
Because we may be too blind to see it in ourselves. In fact, we usually are, right? Is there anyone in your life who really knows your lifestyle, who knows whether you're giving or saving or why you're spending what you're spending? There's no problem with spending, but why are you making the choices that you make in that? It always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? I think we're happy to talk about relationship issues, what's going on with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We're, we're happy to talk about parenting problems, marital problems, sexual sins. But when it comes to money, that's, that's private. It's really the one topic we, we don't talk about with other people. And yes, those conversations need to be handled with care and wisdom with someone you can trust, right? This is sensitive information, But this is one area where we need other people the most because our lens is so often distorted when it comes to what we have and really, more importantly, what has us when it comes to money and wealth and possessions. And as a church family, as as parents, as a community together raising children, what are we modeling for? What are we teaching our kids about treasuring? What are we teaching them to love? The American Psychological Association says this, compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. Our becoming better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. So kids, I'm sorry. We've given you everything you could possibly want except for the thing you really want, what you actually need. Contentment and satisfaction and joy. There's so many toys and devices and opportunity that you have that most people never even dream of. And we've given you every material advantage instead of actual contentment, actual happiness. Sorry about that. We do better it's a community modeling what's really important. Okay, so at this point, I'm sure some of us are feeling a little bit sad. <laughs> Maybe a little guilty. We're thinking, man, I need to go out and buy something to make myself feel better. <laughs> uh, some of you are on Amazon right now on your phones, uh, buying something right now. Some of you just uh, bought with one, per- with one click there. Um, it's Okay. The last comparison that Jesus makes is this. He says we need a a better treasure, a better lens, and ultimately we need a better master. You'll be ruled by what you love, what you love, Jesus says. And, And he makes that most explicit here in verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it, Jesus says. You know, Jesus is in a context, right, where, where slavery was a common part of the world. It's different than, you know, slavery in the U.S., but slavery was a common facet of the world in which Jesus lived. And, and people knew you can't be owned by two different masters because they both demand everything from you. It's not like working two part-time jobs or a full-time job and two part-time jobs. You couldn't do that. You can't have two masters. You can't be owned by two masters at once. They both demand everything. We try, don't we? 
try really, really hard. We end up just feeling torn because we never please either one. And listen, again, don't misunderstand. It's not that we reject money or working hard or saving. It's not that we can't own nice things or visit nice places or make a lot of money. Jesus is not saying that. But what it is, and this is the third action item for this morning, is that you have to let money be your servant, not your savior. That's what Jesus' point is here. Money is a great servant. You can invest in good products and businesses that create jobs. You can plan for the future to provide for your family's needs as well as even with your family's wants and opportunities. You can give to the needy. There's no shortage. Remember, we here in this room are financially better off than about 7.2 billion other people on the planet and the lowest billion of those income bracket are going to need help from others if they're going to survive in the world. So there's lots of opportunities to help. And you can support your church. The incredible life-changing work that God is doing right here through the local church, through the local and global partners that we support um, to make a lasting difference in our neighborhoods, in our broader Kansas City, and in the world. We believe deeply at Christ Community, the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. Not because we're so great. That's not it. But because Jesus said, this is what he's going to do. He said, I'm going to build my church, and this is how I'm going to get done what I want done in the world through the local church, as crazy as that seems. So if you want an investment tip, invest in the local church. If you're not sacrificially generous to the local church, you're missing out. And you won't find a better return on investment. Money is a great servant. It's a great servant. It's a terrible savior. It is an absolutely terrible savior because it will promise you everything. But it can't deliver. And its demands only get more and more. The more of it you have and the more of it you use. Promises you can feel important or happy or at least distracted, powerful, safe. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia stories, it's like Edmund and the white witch who promises this Turkish delight and that he'll be a king someday. Promises everything only to find that it ends up with walls built around you and the food turning to ash in your mouth. It tastes so good, at least for those first few bites. And it leaves you empty and abandoned. Money cannot die for your sins. Money can't forgive you. Money can't love you. Money can't comfort you when your friend, your spouse, your child dies. It's a great servant. It's a terrible savior. It's not going to defeat the grave or offer hope or victory that lasts beyond 80 years. When it comes to the stuff that matters most, money can do nothing for you. I think we'd all agree, Christian or not, that money is a better servant than master. But we're all lousy at actually making money our servant. And so here's a few quick tips. Like how do we actually begin to take money and put it out of the category of savior or master and put it into the category of servant in our lives? Here's just a few quick things to start off with. First, 
What you have to do is make a plan. We already talked about this, but this is not going to happen if you don't plan for it to happen. So create a plan. Build a budget that has margin in it. Avoid debt. Save prudently. Pay off debt. Plan for generosity. It's not going to happen without a plan. So make a plan. Second, pray for contentment, right? Because this is a heart issue. At the end of the day, this is, this is not going to just be solved by some numbers on a spreadsheet if your heart is not there. So pray for contentment. Focus on gratitude for what you have rather than the pursuit of what you don't. Gratitude and contentment are a better way. Spend time regularly thanking God for all that he has given you rather than focusing on what you don't have. So make a plan, pray for contentment, Third, buy stuff for its usefulness rather than for, your, for its status or how it makes you feel. Does that make sense? Buy stuff for its usefulness rather than for its status or how it makes you feel. Right? It's kind of like, hmm, I can feel my feelings or I can buy a new TV. Well, let's put that on the credit card. I mean, so many of us do that. We feel sad or excited or happy and the way that we deal with that emotion is we go, we, we buy something. We buy stuff because of how it is going to make us look or feel in the world. That if I have a, a certain electronic device or a certain handbag or type of car or whatever, that somehow people will think, wow, like they really have it together and they're awesome. Do you think that about other people? You know, no one actually thinks that. Like, wow, they got a new Apple Watch. They must be really awesome. I mean, I don't know. It's like, man, that's cool that they got that. I want that too or whatever. But it doesn't work. It doesn't deliver on what it promises. So buy stuff for its usefulness, not, not its status, not the feeling it gives. And then fourth, embrace a lifestyle of generosity. And you have to put generosity at the top of that budget sheet as well. Because if you wait at the month to kind of like, fill in everything else and then see if it just, there's not going to be anything left. There never is anything left at the bottom. So you've got to put it at the top. And give stuff away. Give more than you feel you can spare. <laughs> give until it hurts. Kids, you may have too many Legos or stuffed animals or video games or clothes or, or whatever. Start now having the practice of, of just giving that stuff away before it takes over your heart. Again, during Lent, be thinking maybe not only about what am I giving up, but what could I give away? One of the best ways to find freedom from the slavery to money and stuff is to ruthlessly give, to give it away. And the harder that is for you, the more uncomfortable you are in this moment thinking about, I do not want to give stuff away. That means all the more that it has you and you need to. So go through your closets, your basement, your finances, and give things away. Over the last four or five months uh, with Marie Kondo and Dave Ramsey giving us some pointers along the way, Rachel and I have been doing this in our family, getting rid of stuff, refining our budget. And trust me, it's, it does hurt at times. But man, it has been good and yielded a degree of happiness. It's been fresh and new in our lives. But here's the thing, even just giving stuff away at the end of the day isn't enough. It's not enough to dethrone money. We can't just say, I'm no longer to have money as my master because we need a better master. So run to the only master who will 
eventually and ultimately give you the freedom that you've always desired, a master who buys us out of the cruel tyranny around us, who gives us the hope that we've been searching for, the master who paid the price, the ultimate debt on the cross. He defeated death and sin and all that is broken, and he offers us a way through, through faith in him. See, we will be ruled by what we love. That's not an option for us. Bob Dylan said it, you're going to serve somebody. You can only be ruled by one master. And you can either have the master who enslaves you and never satisfies and always demands more and always piles up a heavier load, or you can have the one who died to set you free. Remember, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have come and sent your son to die for us, to rescue us, to ransom us from slavery to sin. And that because of that, sin is no longer our master. We have been freed from that. We can have you as our master who sets us free. Show us the places in our hearts where we have unwittingly just given ourselves over to money and stuff and break the chains there so that we could be free. In Jesus' name, amen.